Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have William G. Meikle. He's part of the USDA. He's a research entomologist there. And we're going to talk about uh, the dynamics of bee colonies. William, thanks for coming. Sure. Tell me uh, about your work with uh, USDA. What's the specific focus of your work right now? Well, I focus on um, colony-level behavior, bee colonies. So I um, basically put a lot of sensors on beehives and monitor them over long periods of time to see how things like sublethal pesticides might affect um, the colony behavior. When you say monitor them, I, I know it's dark inside of a, you know, a beehive or a bee colony, but can you use infrared or cameras or how do you monitor them? Well, when I say monitor, I just mean collect data on a continuous basis. Continuous might mean one reading every uh, 15 minutes. It might mean one reading every second. Um, we monitor, for example, hive weight, hive temperature, CO2. Um, we've done hive internal humidity. Basically, we just sort of collect a lot of continuous data on these different parameters. Well, that's really cool. What, uh, what interesting things have come out of the data? Well, it's very interesting that you can tell a lot of things from continuous data. You know, if you just think of a human body, if you were to put monitors on uh, gas exchange and, you know, various metabolic parameters, even temperature, things like that, you'd be able to tell, for example, maybe when you had a cup of coffee and um, when you did certain activities or when you're not doing an activity, so the point is with a beehive is that they would be acting sort of like a human body. So a bee colony is sort of like an animal. And we can tell a lot of what, how it's reacting to the environment or reacting to food or reacting to different things by continuously monitoring these things. So you said you weigh the hive. Is it where well, you have some hives sitting on a scale? And exactly. like, you know, when the bees go out and forage, they come back, the hive is heavier by X number of grams. Exactly. We have scales that are pretty precise, so we can put them out in the field. We, at the moment, there's there's different kinds of hive scales, but the ones we have are powered by solar panels, and um, they uh, get weight data every. I think we have it set up every 15 minutes or so. We can get weight data as often as we want, and exactly we can tell when the foragers leave and when they come back, and how much the hive gains, how much it loses at night, for example. Um, all those things. So what's it like inside of a hive, like typical temperature, CO2 and oxygen levels, humidity, et cetera? That's a very interesting question because it varies a lot. Now, when uh, when a colony has baby bees in it, they tend to keep the what's called the cluster where most of the bees are it's sort of roughly in the center of the hive. They keep it at about 35 degrees centigrade, which is in the mid 90s in Fahrenheit. I can't remember the number offhand. We always work in centigrade and metric scale, but they'll keep it very, very tight within a, a few tenths of a degree of 35 degrees to raise their brood. So the temperature on the interior of a hive for most of the year is very constant. In the winter, when there isn't so much you know, baby bees around the brood, 
they let the temperature change a lot more. But um, generally speaking, it's very constant. So the bees spend a lot of effort making sure that that temperature is constant. Now, humidity varies. It's pretty humid inside a hive. It's usually around, I think, 40 to 70% humidity, not too humid, but it has to have some humidity. Well, bees produce a lot of water just by burning sugar the way we do. And also when they bring in nectar from flowers, they store it in cells to dry it off to be honey. So there's a source of humidity. Now you asked one other thing, which was CO2. And CO2 to me is a very interesting subject. And CO2, well, as we all know, in this this age of global warming, CO2 is around 400, a little bit more than 400 parts per million in the atmosphere on average. Varies a little bit during the day um, as plants, of course, absorb it during the day and then give it off at night. But um, within a beehive, it can go from, oh, probably a bit above ambient, say a thousand parts per million up to 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 parts per million. It gets extremely high in the beehive. But according to all of our data, it, it also goes down. So part of the day, very high. And then part of the day, not too much above ambient. It's, it varies enormously. So the way I see it is this can be a very good clue as to how um, healthy the bee colony is and how it's reacting to different, you know, stressors or environmental factors. Well, let's start with temperature. How could they keep it so consistent? What do the bees do to keep the temperature at that level? You know, when ambient conditions could be tens of degrees cooler, how do they do that? And how do they keep it so finely tuned? Well, how they keep it finely tuned is a good question, but I, I which I can't really answer because they obviously have very good sensors for detecting what the temperature is and what a desirable temperature is. But their mechanism for heating a hive is go into, in a bee colony, you have the comb with the wax comb, which is the wax is something the bees produce and they build this comb, right? Probably all seen that. They'll go into the cells of the comb and a given, one individual bee can can generate a lot of heat. It can go up to 45 degrees centigrade, which is somewhere a hundred and something degrees Fahrenheit is very, it's um, actually very high. And so they'll generate a very high temperature for a very short period of time and then come out and other bees will take their turn generating this. So they'll they're constantly having certain bees going into these cells and generating lots of heat. When they make their baby, baby bees, the brood, they leave holes in the brood um, so it's not like a, a complete coverage of brood. And those holes are where the, the bees will go in and heat up the brood to make sure it's at the right temperature. So that's how the do they do that? Do they vibrate like bumblebees do? Do they like what do they do to generate that heat? They use their thoracic muscles, their flight muscles. So it's like doing isometric exercises where you just shiver or you press the muscles and you activate them so that they heat up. It's like qigong for bees, I guess. It's something like that. I I mean, usually 45 degrees Celsius would, uh, a lot of normal life forms would have problems at that temperature. I'm surprised the bees can not only produce that, but stand it. Yes, it's very surprising. They're interesting animals, bees. Um, They can do that for a short period of time, and it's just the one bee. And then the the way the clusters work in a beehive is um, you have these bees in the center that are basically generating most of the heat. And then bees on the outside acting as an insulating layer so they don't lose the heat. So they don't have to have too many bees heating up. They're also very good at insulating it and maintaining that temperature at a constant level. Now, in terms of uh, carbon dioxide, well, even in terms of temperature, do you have probes all over a hive? Are they stuck into various you know, levels in a hive box to determine the, uh, the heat at each level? Or 
like how finely and how many different measurements of temperature do you make and other markers? Very good question. We have done experiments where we place temperature probes in different parts of the hive. And what we found is actually there's one spot that we think is the most informative for our purposes. And it's somewhere near the top center of, of the hive. We put all of our temperature sensors there. Like I said, we used to put them in different locations, but if you think of a beehive and it's maintaining this constant temperature, there's actually two sources of temperature, if you will. There's the ambient temperature and there's the temperature generated by the bees. So we wanted to try to get, put our temperature sensors somewhere near, actually it's sort of near the interface between the ambient and the bee cluster so that we can get an idea of how the cluster is maintaining the temperature. If we put a temperature sensor right in the center of the hive, it would probably always read 35 or there or close to it, which isn't very interesting. Also, it would interfere with, it might interfere with how the bees are clustering because there's something that's in the way of the center of the cluster. So we like to put it a little bit on the outside and the top, like I said, in the top center of the, bo- of the box. So that's where we put our temperature sensors and we put our CO2 right. sensors at the top as well. So we, we don't have a whole lot of sensors. Uh, these sensors are, are not all that cheap. So we tend to have a lot of hives in these, these different experiments. So we have to be, can't use a, a whole lot of sensors per hive. Well, I just wonder if you would um, take a, a hive and put a whole bunch of sensors in to see, you know, where the queen hangs out. Is it warmer? Where the brood is? Is it warmer? Where the, the oh, upper yeah. levels where the honey is kept? Is it cooler to store it longer? You're absolutely right. We've done that. And in fact, it is cooler on the outsides of the hive. Well, if we live in Arizona, in southern Arizona, so sometimes it's actually quite a bit warmer outside than it is inside. But for most of the year, it's warmer inside the hive. On the outer parts of the, uh, the hive box, it can be a lot cooler. And so it's actually much, it is actually much cooler. There is actually a very strong gradient between the center of the box and the outside. And so the bees tend to keep, like I said, they tend to keep that temperature constant more or less in the center of the box. And, um, they don't worry about the very outer frames very much. And that's where they put most of their honey. It's interesting because also the male bees are called drones and the baby male bees are, it's called drone brood. And that tends to be on the outside as well because it doesn't require the warm temperatures that the worker brood does. The worker brood is of course all females and the drone brood is males. You said that CO2 varies quite a bit. So does it go up or dip at night? Like what conditions determine CO2 levels. I think I would have to go back and look at this, but it varies strong daily pattern, which is interesting. If you think about temperature, there tends to be a strong daily pattern on the outside and a very constant level on the inside. With CO2, there's a very constant level on the outside and a very strong cycle on the inside when it goes, like I said, from a thousand parts per million to 30,000 parts per million. As if I recall, I, I don't have the data sitting here right in front of me, but I think it tends to decrease in the afternoon. And exactly why, I don't know. I don't want to commit to that. I could get back to you later on that. Well, that's fine. But I just wonder if the, uh, if the respiration of the queen increases dramatically when she's laying eggs or, you know, if they're packing away honey or if they're, uh, I don't know, making new comb or, you know, I wonder if there's certain activities that govern that give you a lot more metabolic output. Maybe there's a lot more CO2 production. That's a very good point. And that's something I haven't actually looked at very closely is exactly the, the timing of those peaks. So, but that's a good point is that you would expect the CO2 to go up in certain circumstances, particularly when they're trying to generate heat or when they're doing some kind of work. Now, it, like when the queen's laying eggs, it was, it's really hard for us to say because 
because in fact, we don't have cameras inside the hive. But, and also the, it's interesting because the queens, uh, if you ever work with bees very much, they can be found just about anywhere in the hive. They, they get all, all over the place. They tend to be found towards the center, but you find them just about anywhere. They like to walk around a lot. Okay, so I was saying if you have two hives, one with a queen excluder and one where the queen just goes wherever she wants, maybe if it was, they were instrumented properly, you know, you could see big differences or not see big differences. And you could at least gauge, you know, what's going on with the queen and maybe she's contributing to some of these parameters or not. Of course, they maintain temperature most rigorously when there's brood present. So if there's a queen excluder on the box, that'll keep the queen from going to, say, another box. And you wouldn't expect the temperatures in those boxes to get very high. And in fact, that's what we've observed. If the queen's, you know, where the brood is, is where the bees take care of the temperature. And if there's a box, it's just got honey in it. They, obviously it's connected to the box with the brood and therefore it gets some of that temperature management, but it doesn't, they don't control it when it's around honey or anything like that. They don't control the temperature. What what about um, seasonal variations and all these parameters, like during the winter, you know, how's temperature and CO2 versus summer versus spring? The CO2 doesn't seem to change that much. Temperature varies a lot. I mean, it'll, like I said, it'll be very constant when they're raising brood, which is most of the active field season, which tends to last from, oh, say, you know, mid-spring to the fall. Here in Arizona, we have a very long field season because it's so warm most of the year. But in much of the United States, it's bees that start getting active when in March, something like that, maybe April up north. And then they start wrapping things up in September, October. Um, so, so the temperature tends to be very constant for that whole period of time. Now, when they winter comes, then they start decreasing. They often start decreasing brood production and the temperatures can drop. Instead of being 35 degrees centigrade, it can get down to 30 degrees centigrade or even 25 degrees centigrade or even lower in the middle. But it'll always be definitely warmer than outside in the winter. Inside a hive is... They definitely maintain temperature. So bee colonies never hibernate. They are always warm. And even if it's in you know, southern Canada and it's minus 20 outside, if you go inside that bee colony, you will find it is going to be at least 20 degrees in the cluster or warmer, 30, even 30 degrees. And so well, that- I thought there was like big warehouses where they keep you know, the ambient at like 40 degrees so that I guess even though the bees are not actually hibernating they don't venture out of the hive they just stay in there and hang out yes they do in fact we've done experiments with that the when they're in those warehouses they don't actually yeah they don't leave because bees tend not to fly if the temperature is much lower than about 55 degrees fahrenheit and then in those uh cooling sheds they tend it tends to be like you said like 40 or so degrees and they won't fly at all they'll just stay in the cluster and eat honey and basically, the, the cluster itself is constantly roiling as bees move from the inside of the cluster to the outside. And then the bees on the outside go on the inside to warm up a little bit. And the cluster itself will move around within the beehive to different places to eat honey. It's a constant dynamic organism in there, if you will. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What other parameters do you look at in regards to the hive? You said heat, temperature, humidity. CO2. I don't know, can you, oh, right. CO2. Is there, what about bee count or composition? Are you able to put something on the entry or exit of the hive and kind of like a door clicker? You know, yeah. every time a bee goes in or out, you know who's in or out. We actually don't have any of those um, electronic devices to monitor uh, bee traffic for various reasons. The, the data can be 
you can get a whole lot of data and it's sometimes difficult to figure out exactly what it's telling you because uh, sometimes bees will hang out at the entrance and it'll just make it go click, 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 and you'll get a bunch of readings that don't really mean anything. doesn't mean that those bee traffic indicators are, are not, the data is not worth anything. It's just we don't happen to you work with those. What we do in, d- during our experiments is we um, have these, we reevaluate the bee colonies about every four to six weeks. And when we take the colony apart, basically, and weigh parts of it and photograph all of the frames that have the baby bees, the brood on it, that we can get really good estimates of how much brood they have. And then we, we take all of the weights of the hive parts and add them up. And then we take the whole hive weight and we subtract the weight of the parts, the sum of the weight of the parts from the whole hive weight to get the weight of the, the adult bees. So we can get pretty consistent and reasonably accurate estimates of the bee population. So that's what we do every, like I said, every four to six weeks. What about um, in a given day, if they're eating, you know, how much are they, they're out, you know, getting pollen and nectar, how much weight does the hive add on like a per bee basis or a whole hive basis? Oh, that really, how much does it give off at night? It, that really depends on where it is. We tend to get during, for example, what we call a nectar flow when the, um, there's a, a bloom and there's a lot of flowers around that have nectar for the bees to forage on and, and pollen. Um, we can get, you know, pound or two a day. In some places, and I've worked with colleagues in Europe, like in Denmark, where they have, you know, a clover crop, for example, bee colonies can gain two kilograms a day. So four or five pounds in a day just from clover nectar. So that tends to be in places that have very short field seasons and the bees colonies grow very rapidly and they can collect enormous amounts of food over a short period of time. So I would say here, you know, maybe a pound or two at the their greatest rate, but that could be, you know, you, they could collect it two or three times more in the Northern United States or in Northern Europe. So what are you trying to shed light on with your research? What are you trying to figure out? Well, what I'm trying to do is understand how bees respond to stressors. One kind of stress, for example, is sublethal pesticide exposure. So we give bees these concentrations of very, very low concentrations of pesticides, for example, neonicotinoids. And we, of course, also have control colonies. And we give them these neonicotinoids over a course of about six weeks to simulate bees collecting it from a field that's been treated with neonicotinoids. And then we monitor the high weight and temperature and CO2 to see how that is affected by the presence of low concentrations of pesticides in their diet. Next, using, you know, on, with respect to high weight and with respect to temperature and to CO2. So we know bees react to it. Yeah. So what are you discovering um, at these low concentrations of these chemicals? What happens to the you know, how does the hive respond? Well, it depends on the chemical. We've used, um, we've done experiments with two neonicotinoid pesticides. Um, the bees reacted very differently to the different pesticides. And also it depended on the concentration. What we found with imidacloprid, which is a common neonicotinoid, is that the hives fed low concentrations, about five parts per billion, which is if you had about a half a golf ball of imidacloprid and dumped it into an Olympic swimming pool, that's about five parts per billion. The bees um, actually had very good temperature regulation. They actually did okay in many respects. You know, maybe they were a longer term 
negative impacts, but in the short term, it was it wasn't all that negative. But if that dosage was increased to 20 parts per billion, which again is still pretty low, um, although any positive benefits were no longer present. Now that's with one neonicotinoid. There's a we've worked with another neonicotinoid, and I'm just working on the paper right now and got completely different results. And that second one, it didn't seem like we there were any redeeming, you know qualities to the pesticide or any good points to having it in the insect's diet. And we, we've also used a third kind of pesticide or anyway, a third pesticide, which is an insect growth regulator and also found some effects on temperature regulation. But the point is that even at very low concentrations, which are concentrations about what the bees experience in the field, we can find a measurable impact on the colony that you wouldn't be able to find if you were just visiting the colony once in a while. You wouldn't notice those things, but the colonies are reacting to it because it's present in their diet. Well, if you ramp up slowly, you know, the amount of uh, these chemicals, what happens? Have you done that to the point where the hive really starts to have problems? No, but we've run uh, experiments with different concentrations. We've done 5, 20, and 100 parts per billion, for example, with midichlober. At 100 parts per billion, those were not uh, very good effects. The colony actually sort of ceased foraging which is kind of odd because it's a colony full of bees and absolutely no honey at all. So, so we've tested, in other words, we've tested colonies using different concentrations. So we haven't ramped up the concentration on a single colony. We've done it um, different concentrations across many colonies. And um, Well, know, I think it's a poison. So as you ramp it up, at some point, uh, the hive gets poisoned and they wouldn't do normal things that they normally do. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's a poison, um, but it's interesting because neonicotinoids, of course, have a basis. Um, they they attack the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, and so it would be the same. Like, I guess you know, maybe at very low concentrations might be considered having a cup of coffee or something. Uh, but I don't know. Those are just from what I've observed with uh, with respect to the colonies. It seems like they, it gives them a bit of a, a, a sort of a stimulus in a way. But like I say, the longer term impacts may be negative, but in the short term, it seems um, that it wasn't, it was, it was more of a stimulatory thing. So, but you're right at a certain level, they are insect toxins. So at a certain level, they're going to kill them. But we always, we've been working consistently with um, sublethal concentrations rather than, than lethal ones. We all know what the results of a lethal concentration are. It's uh, the sub-lethal. Right. But if they, if they stop foraging, Pretty soon, that means they're dead. they're dead, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Like so I essentially, said, it's not immediately lethal, but uh, I yeah. would think probably within a, a week, that's the end of them, right? Uh, no, actually, they can last quite a bit longer. But this hmm. because they can also feed on the um, honey that they've already gathered if they're not foraging very much. Okay, so they can last as long as that. So, what about colonies that have like varroa mites in them? Have you looked at temperature, you know, humidity, CO two, etc., and then have you tried exposing those to for these compounds um, to see what happens? Does the hive react better or more poorly? Maybe it, you know, it burns out the the mites. Maybe it has beneficial effects. Who knows? You know, it's very difficult to do those kinds of experiments here in the U.S. because almost all colonies have varroa mites. They're so ubiquitous. So, so to get rid of varroa mites, you have to very, very treat colonies with varroacides, mm-hmm. and you have to do so very vigorously. And that would, of course, that might interfere with your whole experiment. Now, we do have colleagues in Australia. Now, Australia is one continent that does not have varroa mites. It's the only 
beekeeping continent that doesn't have varroa mites. And so we did run a, an experiment in Australia with neonicotinoids to see how, with imidacloprid, in fact, to see how they would do. And it's interesting, they actually was almost no impact at all of imidacloprid at five or 20 parts per billion. No, it was very difficult to detect anything. And we think it's because the bee, the environment of Australia is so different than Southern Arizona. So the bees had much more forage in Australia than they did here in Southern Arizona. So it's all mixed up. We have varroa mites, we have environments, and we have pesticides, and it's very difficult to tease these apart. Interesting. What's next in terms of your experimentation? What do you want to look at now and, and try to figure out where you're on the path? It's just it's just going to be a lot of sampling and a lot of looking. Yeah, well, right now, our current project is to subject bee colonies to this cold storage that you had mentioned earlier and put temperature and CO2 sensors in those colonies and see how they do in the cold storage facilities compared to hives that are not put in the cold storage facility. Now, some people put them in cold storage, some beekeepers will put them in cold storage even before winter, just as a way of getting the bees to reduce the brood production so that they can then control the varroa mites easier. So it's part of a mite control strategy. So what we're doing is one of our research goals is to investigate the impact of that cold storage treatment on colony level behavior like thermal regulation and CO2 regulation. Now we're also putting colonies into cold storage during the winter with the same objective. I'm personally interested in seeing if colonies still have these strong daily patterns, even when they're put in a place that doesn't have the usual cues or even temperature cues as they, as the hives outside. So what happens? Do they have a strong circadian rhythm that will generate patterns? That's one of the questions that we're currently investigating. So that's something. So we're looking at the effects of cold storage on these colonial behavior. Another aspect of research is to get different strains of bees and see if distinguish these different strains based on their uh, colony level behavior in terms of hive weight and temperature and CO2. So more getting pesticide exposure towards other things. I mean, do bees sleep? Do bees sleep? They do in the evening. They do. They do sleep. Well, of course, the entire colony doesn't go to sleep. So bees can sleep um, in the colony, but the colony itself is sort of always active, if you will. Even if there's no bees flying out, you, you've got this constant uh, dynamic movement of bees from the interior of the, to the exterior of the cluster and, and things like that. When they sleep, are they knocked out or they're still moving around just like slowly? Or, you know, do they sleep like sharks where they, they keep moving or do they just sit there and they don't move and they sleep in place? That's a good question. I don't know that much about bee sleep. I know that there are uh, researchers who have worked on that. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't know very much about it, but I suspect that they don't move. So maybe hmm. they sit in one part of the hive, but it wouldn't be for like 12 hours. It might just be for a very short period of time and they don't move and then they're okay. Interesting. I guess, yeah, I guess it's just not known. Well, it, maybe it is known. Um, like I said, there are researchers that have worked on it, but I haven't, I'm not one of them. I think it's actually a really... That's a very interesting question. Very good. Uh, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? You know, where can they go? Just the USDA's website or where should they go? Well, yeah, basically the USDA website is where we have a lot of our uh, material. And they can contact, contact me by email or 
um, visit the website and there's, we've got a number of publications they can access if they're interested in this kind of research. Very good. Well, William, thanks for coming on the call. It's been an interesting call. Well, thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.